Are you thinking about what Bitcoin might mean in your retirement plan or investment portfolio? Or wondering if you should consider buying some Bitcoin instead of something else? Bitcoin is the most important financial tool people should be thinking about today. But how to get there is less obvious, and part of the issue is it's almost impossible to get good financial advice about Bitcoin. Our guest this week is Morgan Richard, who is a certified financial planner trailblazing this important concept. You're listening to The Block Reward, the show where we help you understand Bitcoin without you having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles. I'm the CEO and founder of Block Rewards, and part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them. So if you're ready to learn something about how Bitcoin might impact your own financial world and your long-term financial plans, stick around. This episode should help a lot. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest this week is CFP, Morgan Richard, and we are going to be talking about Bitcoin in financial planning. Welcome, Morgan. Thanks for coming to the show. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on, Scott. For our listeners who are t- more in the sort of new to Bitcoin space, maybe if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your, your journey with your practice in uh, helping people invest in Bitcoin. Yeah, definitely. So I've been working in finance now for over 15 years. Um, I started my registered investment advisory firm about almost 10 years ago now, which is kind of crazy. I was working for, um, I worked for Merrill Lynch and then I worked at UBS and I just thought, well, I, I like what I'm doing. I just really don't like where I'm doing it. And I'd heard about going independent, but I didn't really, I didn't realize that going independent meant that you can literally just be one person who opened a shop and do financial planning for people until I came across somebody who was literally doing that. And I thought, well, if this guy can do that, for sure I can do it, which, you know, <laughs> Maybe it's saying something to about like the level of risk I'm willing to take as a person that you just see somebody else doing it and you think, whatever, I can go for it. But that's what I did. I sort of flew by the seat of my pants and opened up a firm. And here we are 10 years later. So it's worked out, thank God. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm, it started as just like more of a cut and dry investment management firm. I had my CFA and I thought I knew everything and that I could do everything. And I guess, honestly, the more I've been in practice, the less I actually think I know and the more I think that the world can teach me a thing or two. About three years into my practice, I realized that I needed to do financial planning for people, not just investment management. People don't want just a wannabe hedge fund manager. They want somebody who can give them real advice about the problems that they are going through as an individual. And so my practice pivoted um, in 2016 to becoming a financial planning firm. And coincidentally, is actually the first time I advised on Bitcoin. I had some some client come through who was interested, who had heard about it. Um, and I started giving some advice about Bitcoin in 2016, and then again in 2017. And from there, it's just sort of been an upward path, I would say, for me getting where I am now. I now have people who have been involved in Bitcoin coming through in my practice who have financial planning questions. They are already orange pillow. They're already bought into the fact that, you know, Bitcoin is the way for them. They just have other questions related to their life and how this fits in and and how they can really make all the pieces of their finances work. And so I would say 10 years later now, in the last three years, we're finally getting like the clientele that I kind of always hoped that we would have um, have here. But but yeah, it's it's been a long journey for sure. And it's certainly I feel like we're just going up and up from here. <laughs> Totally. And and I think you make a great point there. There's a gap yet to be filled in terms of people understanding that Bitcoin has an important place in financial plans. But I also think that on the other end, it it's not the only part of the plan. And and you're you're a good source of uh a sort of content around uh, around that idea. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the hardcore Bitcoin people really do uh just uh think you can stop there. And uh For sure. I think in general though it's hard for people because So there's this concept that two things can be true and two things are true is very hard to wrap our mind around because on the one hand, it means that like it doesn't necessarily mean that your idea is wrong, right? It means that your idea is right, but there's also something else that's right too. And they could be married hand in hand and two things are true don't mean that whatever you're thinking is wrong, but our brains aren't really that wired for that to like hold two thoughts in the same place. And so I think that I find that people can be very all or nothing. And it's not just in the Bitcoin world. It's like that in general where people are, you know, you're set on a specific path and you start going down that path and that path is true. And that's right. It is true, right? But there's something else that's also true and they can fit into your financial plan together. You were so you were I would say among early er to Bitcoin and when you when you were 
first giving advice about Bitcoin to clients. Was that before or after that you understood Bitcoin? That's a great question. Probably before, to be honest. I feel like the more, I, I definitely what I know now is not what I knew then. And certainly the way I could describe Bitcoin itself, what money is, what the network is doing, everything else is is probably going to pale in comparison to what I'll be able to tell people in 10 years from now, I would imagine. So whatever I know now is probably not even the 10th of what I hope to know in the future. But what I knew then is definitely much less than what I know now. And so I think (laughs) it's just, it's a testament to, you know, as long as you know enough, you could probably give reasonable advice. And I think that that's sort of knowing that we don't all know everything all the time. I think that that's why we should be conservative in how we give advice. Right. And so instead of being like, okay, you know, go all in, everything's great, you're gonna be fine. Right. Um, Like my stance on it is okay, like, I might be wrong about things. So maybe like we look at the situation the way that we see it now, and we can make a determination with the knowledge that we have, make the best recommendation that we could possibly make at this time. And if we have to change it later, then we do. Yeah. And I I think you you raise another good point there about how the the information that was available uh, in 2016 or 2015 and the the consensus sort of opinion of what it was would have been a lot different. Like the market is is understanding Bitcoin better all the time. So this is kind of those, um, you know, people who wish they would have bought Bitcoin at X price. But like the reason you didn't is because there was there was just so much it was so much more of an unknown uh, exponentially more unknown earlier on, right? The, the farther back you go, the less price information we understood, but also just what it was going to do. You know, I think a lot of these opinions that we have of what's happening today definitely have the hindsight, have the benefit of hindsight of now having seen several cycles and, and, uh, this trend is, is at least appears to be building a, a, a pattern. Yeah, it's a lot easier for sure to make predictions about what you would do in the past when you know what has happened now. And I think that we often think that for if we had bought, you know, in 2012 or whatever, we would be holding it today. I actually did a lot of research for a book that I'm currently writing. It's the Bitcoin personal finance book. And I talked to a lot of people about their experiences. And what I found was that the people who came in the earliest had actually sold the most Bitcoin. And that's for a number of reasons, right? The first thing being that they weren't sure whether or not it was going to work out, right? And they had made quite a lot of money. And so there's no way that somebody could have known in 2011 that it was going to be $60,000, dollars in 2021, right? It's very, very hard to see price action that far in the future, in which case, if you, you know, 10x, 20x, 30x from where you bought it, and you sell some, right, it's, it's not saying like, it's, there's nothing wrong with that person, right? <laughs> I think in the community, we often think like, oh, you have to hold forever, right? But just given people's financial situations, right, maybe that may or may not make sense. And so there's that portion of it. There's the other portion of, you know, where people lose, they lose their Bitcoin, or um, they sorted improperly, or they left it on an exchange, and that exchange got hacked. There was a lot of that stuff that also happened, in which case, you know, it's hard to know whether or not if you were that person who bought it in 2011 or 2012, that you wouldn't have been caught up in something like Mount or you wouldn't have been caught up in everything that went on with Charlie Shrem back in the day, or, you know, you wouldn't have bought a different coin for whatever reason. So, and then there was also like the, the block size war that happened, right? Like people were very nervous in 2017. So it's just, it's just hard for people to have, like, it's, it's easy for people to see what happened after it did, but it's hard to know whether or not you would have been able to hold through it all. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's even now it, it's an extremely uh, emotional asset to hold. And uh, that that phenomenon would have been much worse the earlier on you you were in Bitcoin for sure. I also think an interesting you know dynamic back to this idea of hindsight is the people people understood inflation in some regard, say 10, 15 years ago, but I don't think it had anywhere near the urgency or the relevance that it does today. Like this this is also something that is an emerging condition of our evolving financial sort of. Uh, global financial system that I, I I just I don't think was a was a narrative that would have uh, resonated with people nearly nearly like it does now ten or twelve years ago. Yeah, definitely. So um, I first started my career in two thousand eight, um, basically right while the global financial crisis was happening. Um, I started working in June, and um, Bear Stearns had already gone under that March, um, and so it was. Like we didn't know, obviously, in June that like what was going to happen happened. But 
if we recall, right, the government started printing massive quantities of money come September, October, November of that year. And I remember I was I was working as a trader at the time. And so there was a guy on, on the team who there was this ETF called TLT. I think it still exists. It's like the 10 year, I think it's the 10 year treasury bond. Sorry. And for all the listeners who are TLT experts, like, please don't hold me accountable. If it's the 30 year bond, I'm really not sure it could be 10 or 30. Um, <laughs> and so he had it in his mind that like he had to be short TLT and long tips. Tips is the inflation related bond because he thought, well, the government's printing all this money. So of course there's going to be inflation. Like it's just, it's a certainty in my mind. I'm going to be short TLT and I'm going to be long tips. And if anybody knows what happened at that time, that's exactly the opposite of <laughs> what he should have been doing because basically we were in a deflationary spiral. It was the reason why the government got involved and them printing massive amounts of money for whatever reason, injecting liquidity into a system that had no liquidity, right? It had no effect on the prices. Um, and obviously like we've seen the like the catastrophic effects of that you know, 15 years later, you know, because they didn't just stop printing money there. They kept printing money year after year. And we probably would have been fine if they just printed that year and we all moved on and we went back to what we were normally doing. But instead, no, like, they kept injecting liquidity into the system continually. And then it was like, okay, well, this is now just what we do when there's a crisis. We inject liquidity into the system without really thinking about what the repercussions of that might be. And of course, there have been writers and other economists who have come out who have just said, we can print money forever. We don't need to ever worry about this, right? Trust me, just print. And so I think now that we're seeing the shocks of what has happened from printing money year after year for 15 years without end, you know, and really with no regard to what that could mean in the future that, yeah, it's a much more interesting, it's a, it's a much more interesting just proposition for people because there's a way out now. There wasn't a way out before, right? The way out before was just like, all right, well, I guess I'll just buy stocks, you know, stocks help me fight inflation. But the amount of savings that you have to have and the amount of commitment to investment through very rocky times, right? Stocks are not, I mean, they're pretty volatile and people forget that or they don't like to say that because it's so commonplace now to invest in stocks, whereas investing in Bitcoin, you know, that's the most volatile thing you could possibly do. So like, you know, stocks look really like much better from a volatility standpoint to the average person than something like Bitcoin does if you don't understand what it is. And so I think that like if we think about it from a contextual point of view, right, that back then it wasn't as exciting, the inflation narrative. But now when you go to the grocery store and, you know, your eggs cost twice as much as they did just a year ago, right? It's very palpable. It's very easy to see why you would want an out from the current financial system. Yeah. And to the point about stocks, people like Michael Saylor have done some really interesting work, I would say shining a light on maybe a little bit of the mirage of the, of the index returns. And uh, there was a, a presentation he gave recently to some, I think, investors in Argentina comparing the actual expand, not CPI, but the expansion of the money supply against the growth of uh, the S&P and the charts it essentially look identical. So really, if you're buying the index, your your money is basically just growing at the rate of the, the supply of money is growing. It's, it's a really, I don't think people think that way about stocks when the <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And like you're taking a lot of risk, right? Because you're you're relying on these companies to continue to grow, produce, do all the things that they're doing. You're relying on economies to continue to to grow at the paces that they're growing. You're relying on like, you know, there's a lot of other hidden risks that we don't see when we just buy a S&P 500 index that, yeah, maybe like the systematic risks of specific companies are taken out of that. But the risk of the system overall is still in there. And so I think for a lot of people, like why we want to hold money, right, is very obvious. Like, and the and it's been made impossible by governments. People really just want to go to work. They want to earn a paycheck. They want to spend some of it. And then they want to save some of it. And they don't want to worry about putting it into an index fund or making sure that they're, you know, getting all this tax savings by allocating it here and buying this over there and, you know, you know, trying to find outpace in some way by finding some interesting, exciting investment that they don't have time to really research. Um, and so you're just forcing people beyond their risk tolerance over and over and over again just to make sure that people go buy things every single year. I mean, the whole concept just seems crazy. Like when you really think about it why they're doing inflation. It's like, is there really growth if everybody is not better off? If, you know, we all have 2% like dilution in our money every single year. Um, and two, like 2% is like at best, right? It's like <laughs> the best case scenario is that you only lose 2% a year. Um, worst case scenario is obviously, you know, you're in Zimbabwe and 
the paper that the money is printed on is worth more than the money itself. Yeah, 2% is like your money loses half its value every 35 years. That's just as long as you're probably planning to work. So that's a huge headwind when you're thinking about planning for the future. And if it is much worse, like at 8%, then your money's losing half its value like less than a decade. It's crazy. It is crazy. We work with dimensional funds quite a bit. And one of their, they give us stack for people, uh, for advisors like me to give out. And they have these slides basically. And the first slide literally is, why should you invest? And you go to the next slide and it, they show you inflation. It's like, there's no, there's no pretending why we're doing this, right? Like government is, you know, basically screwing you out of your money, right? And then we, you need financial advisors to allocate you as quickly as possible. And financial advisors, the only way they can allocate you as quickly as possible without make, without you actually losing all of your money is by putting you in either these index style funds or these actively traded funds that hold many, many companies so that you're diversifying around the globe so that you don't necessarily lose in any one single company. It's, it's not a great system, honestly, for the average person. And so the only way to really get ahead is to save a significant portion. Um, and for what that means for the average person is that they're really living a lifestyle that they never like a much lower lifestyle than they're willing to live. Um, And so they're racking up debt or they're not saving enough. Or they're in a situation where, you know, for whatever reason, they worked for a small company and they got some stock and that stock happened to, you know, be go up much more than the index, right? And now all of a sudden, they're an overnight millionaire, and they've got, you know, the problems that come along with that. Um, But that's not every person around, obviously, in America, right? So for most people, what they have to do is they have to really live much lower than their means. Um, And for most people, that's going to mean saving somewhere between 20 and 30% of their pre tax income just to, you know, retire in 20 to 25 years. For a lot of people, that's just not feasible just given where prices are going. And if the government keeps printing money, obviously, then prices go up and then it makes it harder for those people to save that 20 to 30 percent of their pre-tax income. Yeah, there's at least where I'm in Canada, there, there's a lot of people who have great careers and can't actually save any money. And they're not li- they're not living lavish lifestyles. They're they're just, you know, like um, the crisis of affordability of, of housing up here. You know, people are spending 60 percent of their of their after tax income on on uh, rent. And it's like so. There, there isn't much room for a plan at that point other than, uh, you know, feed yourself. It's it's really wild. And I think, yeah, I mean, people shouldn't have to be have a, a side gig as a hedge fund manager just to hopefully, you know, be able to stop working one day. It just none of none of this makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I think also like priorities of people are getting skewed. So, for instance, like my family, I think is a good example of this. I'm extremely close to my parents. My I grew up in New York. My family came over in the early 1900s, settled in Brooklyn and basically never left. Um, there is no reason why, other than the fact that our money has been inflated away to the point where I couldn't afford anything other than like a cardboard box under the bridge, you know, for me to have left New York, I want to be around my family. I wanted to be close by them and have the same experience that I had growing up for my kids. But we had to move because we couldn't afford anything in my parents' neighborhood. And so if we were going to move pretty far from them, right, and then we're driving two plus hours to see them, we might as well go move somewhere where, you know, we can have the life that we want to have. So we ended up moving to Texas. Um, and I and I think that my situation is not um, like it's not uncommon. And I know that because like I deal with people like me in my practice all the time that have moved away from family and then they have travel budgets and then they, you know, they have all these other unintended consequences from being inflated out of your money. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a fascinating thing. This is a total tangential statement, but to un- watch what unfolds with big cities uh, over the next 10 and 15 and 20 years. And uh, yeah. We'll see. So I am really curious to talk to you about uh, some of this, you know, uh, continue on in this specific concepts of Bitcoin and, and helping people plan for the future. I do want to pause for a second and ask you this question that I ask every guest every week and start there. And uh, so when you get asked the question, how do you answer what what Bitcoin is? So Bitcoin is a promise of a different life. And I know that that's kind of a, like a touchy-feely answer, I guess, to it. But that's really what it is, right? You're in a system right now where you are, you have little control, um, little to no control over um, what the government is going to do with the money, what the monetary policy is going to be. Um, You can't make decisions based on something that you don't know. And so, like, I think that often people think of Bitcoin and they're like, well, it's hyper volatile. How can people make decisions based on Bitcoin? Maybe the price is hyper volatile, 
And maybe that will change in the future, right? Um, and that's yet to be seen. But the monetary policy is not, right? The monetary policy is known and unchangeable. And when that is true, when you know the future of your money just based on that, then you can make decisions that are appropriate for your financial situation. The example I like to use for this is a is an easy one. So I have a client who um, works in manufacturing, right? If you're working in manufacturing, you're very beholden to what interest rates are and how they affect your business. Um, and especially because like manufacturing now has become a global thing, right? So you, it's not even that you're relying on just this government um, decisions. You're relying on many government's decisions, depending on where your business is located and so forth. How can somebody, just an average person who's you know running a business, it's not even a big business, just, you know, a, a decent sized business in America, how can they possibly make good decisions when they don't know what next year is going to bring? They don't know whether or not they're going to lower interest rates or raise them. They don't know whether or not they're going to inject more liquidity into the system or take it out. They They get no insight from FOMC about what future decisions might be. Um, they're not well-versed enough to be looking at these things the way you know, stock analysts and bond analysts are looking at these charts all the time and trying to make decisions about what FOMC will do based on what they think the futures curve looks like, right? Like, that's not what the average person wants to be doing. The average person wants to be running their manufacturing business, right? And that's what the average person should be doing. They should, you know, and there actually shouldn't be this many analysts looking at interest rates all the time, right? So for me, Bitcoin is the promise of a future where people can actually just involve themselves in what they want to involve themselves in their life and not have to worry about the financial system. Uh, like what's happening in the financial system itself in order to make good decisions. I love that answer. There, then there, there is no wrong answer. But uh, yeah, you, you raise a number of interesting points. And I, I wrote down a tweet of yours that, and I'm going to read it just so I, so I get it exactly right. But it, it's very similar to what you just said. And, and it was, Bitcoin scarcity is a promise, not a probability. And I think you raised such an interesting point because it, it is reframing it around this concept of when you're thinking about long-term future planning. You know, what are the things where you could potentially have some certainty? And uh, and I don't think people do understand Bitcoin's permanent rule system as something that could provide provide that certainty. Yeah, definitely. The network itself, right, they prioritize as a ne- the Bitcoin network prioritizes basically the certainty as much as they can and also just the security of the network. And so if you know that everybody, because it's money and they want certainty with their money and they want security with their money, right, and that every single time they're going to prioritize those two things over everything else, um, if you know that, then you can have some comfort in how you use that money. Whereas if you look at our current system, right, they don't prioritize really any of that. Um, There's no priority on security, right? They have basically trusted third parties everywhere. Those trusted third parties may or may not be trustworthy, Right. And so and then there's also just the certainty. There's literally no certainty. We have no certainty other than, you know, a group of people going into a room and making a decision and then telling us what they decided. And so, yes, there's certainty after there's after their decision. Right. That that's what they've decided and that things are going to proceed. And obviously, like they're not, you know, all knowing and they're not God and they don't actually get to you know make up that much. They get to make up what's going on, like in the very, very short term. Um, And there's debate about whether or not they even have control over that. Um, but that just goes to show that there's even less certainty, right? That these people can, you know, say they have control over things and that they are going to make decisions that are going to provide this certainty, and yet they can't even do that, right? And so there's just a lot less of that in the current financial system. And I think that if people looked at, you know, what they're trading, you know, there's maybe there's some volatility in your money, fine, and you use it as long-term savings instead of short-term savings, just based on, you know practicality of how much like how many businesses or places accept Bitcoin at this point. But that's not the future where I see it going right in the future. I see that people are going to accept these things side by side. And then eventually there will just be one currency. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to come back to that point. (laughs) One one thing I I think also worth adding to your to your point about, you know, monetary policy is there is also a total lack of accountability. Because I mean, in, in democratic countries where the systems are sort of stable. I mean, we, we get to have semi-regular elections, but whichever team, I mean, it doesn't really impact their willingness to spend money. And, and so that they don't, the governments by, by their nature don't have a, a mechanism to make sure that they're making good decisions with the money that they're spending. Uh, other than they, they may lose the next election as a result. But th- even that, I mean, debatably, uh, you know, 
political cycles are long enough that um, you can have a few big foibles and still come out come out okay. Then the next time people get a chance to vote. So maybe to ask you just like a slightly different question: When you have people, either your existing clients that want to learn more about Bitcoin, or new people who have found you and to consider starting to work with you. How would you describe Bitcoin to them in terms of what it does and what it may do for their ability to plan for the future? Yeah, definitely. So we, for clients who started with me and didn't come in as people who have been involved in Bitcoin, um, just the, you know, the regular person who needs financial planning. Um, so for them, we do have a what is money conversation because I would say the average person does not actually know what money is. Money to most people is just something you go buy your coffee with or something that you, you know, you tip your delivery guy with, you know, it's not. And for most people also, yeah, they use money for day to day things, but they don't even really touch money anymore. Right. Like most people don't use cash anymore. Um, Most people are using Venmo as their cash now. And when they go to the grocery store, they use a credit card like they're not even really touching money anymore. It's just a value that they see on their screen and they want, you know, the value to go up. Right. I mean, most people, right. They want the value to go up and they definitely don't want it to go negative. And that's the extent of what people think about their money. Um, And then when they think about savings, we've been so ingrained into thinking of savings as investment, right? Because we can't actually have savings that then we need to have a conversation about, okay, you can have savings that's not investment. And this is how you can do it. And so for most people, they see Bitcoin as just another investment, but saving like Bitcoin is a savings technology, right? And so it's an, it's the ability for people to put their money into something where it doesn't have the risk of a company. It doesn't have the risk of a government, right? But it's also not going to lose a value. It's like this mind blowing proposition for most people of how could that possibly be the case? Um, and so just going through that, um, for most people is going to be a good enough intro to take some sort of position in it. Um, and then from there, we discuss about what's appropriate from a long-term savings point of view. I would say the hardest thing, though, I've had to deal with is that clients can't flip that switch from investment to savings. Um, and it takes a long time for, for people to do that. And it takes many hours of education. So for the average advisor, you know, who has 150, 200 clients, something like that, you know, and you meet with them once or twice a year, you're not going to be able to lay the groundwork and give the kind of education that you need to give to the average person to make them feel comfortable holding this as a savings technology, in which case, if it's just going to be another sleeve in their portfolio where you're allocating, you know, one to 3% to something like Bitcoin, then you're going to be rebalancing, you're going to be doing it in a way that's not actually appropriate for the client, uh, and potentially not harmful, I would say it's better to hold any amount of Bitcoin, I would say. But, you know, it's it's the reason why ETF is exciting, right? It's because there's this whole group of people that they want access to Bitcoin, but they don't really even know what it is. They just think it's something you buy in your brokerage account, right? Um, and so obviously, there are many layers of education that need to go into what a client actually needs to be doing, which is buying Bitcoin outright and holding it and so forth and how they store it. And then there's estate planning considerations once you're doing all these things. So it just the list goes on and on and on of how many things this affects from a financial planning standpoint. Um, I think I actually don't even remember your question because I started going on a tangent there. <laughs> Sorry about that. But that's kind of, the, I guess, the the point I'm trying to make here, though, is that like for the average person, right, we need to sit with them and spend time with them. Um, and so like to take it back to the education point of it, um, clients, they don't necessarily understand, but they can because they're not dumb, right? The person, the reason why they're coming to you, a, an advisor, is because they're smart, they worked really hard, they saved enough money, and now they need help with it. And so I think if we approach it from that point of view of like, okay, these are smart people, they need to understand this, but you know, I've had 10,000 hours of Bitcoin, right? They're obviously not going to understand it the way that I do. And I don't understand it the way some people who have spent 40, 50, 60,000 hours on this have. But you know, I don't need 60,000 hours of Bitcoin to be able to, <laughs> to explain to a client you know, over several meetings why necessarily this would be appropriate for their portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, this might be an unpo- un- unpopular uh, statement with some people listening, but, you know, I think that a lot of people who who give advice about money for a living don't know what money is. I think the original question, uh, your your original answer is started with the conversation about what is money. And it, it is really this funny thing. Like, I, I almost I, I'm sure it, among gold bugs or, or libertarians, like there, there are people who have thought about it. But I really for me, um, having been in financial services for about the same length of time as you people don't tend to spend their time thinking about what money actually is it's just a really abstract and kind of obtuse question (laughs) i think before bitcoin existed it wasn't really even worth much time pondering because what's the point like you have to use it and uh we don't have any choice so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And now that you have sort of this out, it I think it's important to to educate people on how they can take advantage of it, right? And if they're if they don't know enough about it and they don't know no- enough about what money is, then they're not really going to do that, right? Because they're not going to be able to maintain a position in something that is is as volatile as Bitcoin without having that level of understanding of what the technology can do. Mm-hmm. And the idea of having money that is finite is just a very weird idea. And I, I think it's it's like to your idea about uh, when I talked to people about Bitcoin being a savings technology, trying to explain, you know, I think uh, on the one hand, everyone understands that money is becoming less valuable. And we and we know that we can see that by prices going up. But flipping that into the reverse to imagine that the solution could be a money that they just can't make any more of is is not such a simple thing to connect those two together. It's it's a very strange, uh, multi uh, faceted realization that uh, that comes around over time. Let's yeah, let's talk about the ETFs for a little bit. So we're recording this just before Christmas, and there are some big deadlines early in January uh, where a lot of people think that um, Bitcoin ETFs will be coming to the U.S. Uh, we have them in Canada, so it, it's not such a big deal here, but. Uh, it is a much, much, much bigger deal that they will exist in the U.S. So um, maybe just, uh, yeah, Penny, for your thoughts about what the Bitcoin ETFs might mean for uh, U.S. markets, global markets, and uh, the Bitcoin story in 2024. Yeah, definitely. So if you would ask me five years ago, I probably would have had a different answer, which is kind of funny. But now having worked with clients for so long and clients who actually have multi-sig setups and who hold Bitcoin the way that Bitcoin is intended to be held. Um, I actually think it's a distraction, to be honest. But I do think that it offers a promise to people of a way in. Um, And so like we were talking about earlier, right, it's better to hold some Bitcoin than no Bitcoin. Um, And it's better to hold Bitcoin incorrectly, I would say even, than to not hold any Bitcoin at all. Um, And it's probably even better to hold Bitcoin, you know, in an ETF than it is to hold like actual Bitcoin over an exchange, um, maybe not a reputable exchange where potentially your money could be seized. So at least in the ETF, right, I think that there are going to be controls in place that will make it such that the Bitcoin that you buy in the ETF will actually be there. What that means, it doesn't necessarily though mean that the Bitcoin is yours, right? You still hold an asset that holds Bitcoin. So you own the asset, but you don't own the Bitcoin. Um, And I think that for a lot of people, they don't really care, right? The average person doesn't necessarily care whether or not they hold actual gold bars or if they hold, you know, the gold ETF. They're like, the gold's there, whatever. It's easier for me to hold this paper gold than it is for me to hold the actual gold. Um, And I think for the average person, they're just going to think about it like that. It's easier for me to hold this Bitcoin paper ETF thing than it is for me to hold actual Bitcoin. I think that if people actually knew how easy it was to hold Bitcoin, (laughs) then maybe they would make a different decision about that. But again, I think that we're early. And so what I think the ETF does provide for people is a leg in, a way to dip their toe in the water, to see how nice the water is before they actually go on the rest of their Bitcoin journey. For a lot of people, that's going to take a lot of time. Um, What I noticed in my practice was that we got people involved in Bitcoin. We got them involved in the way that we could get them involved. So for some people, that meant that they actually bought Bitcoin. For other people, that meant they bought GBTC. For the people who bought GBTC, we got them involved. We got them talking about this. We got them asking questions. And then those people, then a lot of them went and actually bought Bitcoin and we sold GBTC. Um, And now they're holding it the right way. So that's kind of my greatest hope for this ETF is that, yeah, people get involved and they start asking questions and they start learning more and they start buying books, you know, and talking to people that know about it. And then the next thing you know, they're selling the ETF and they're actually buying Bitcoin because in the future, they want to actually use their money, not hold some sort of paper thing where they have to sell it and then go buy Bitcoin to go use their money. Um, so, but what it means for the price, I mean, I'm not really sure, honestly, like it seems like supply and demand would say that if, you know, uh, billions of dollars come in and buy this ETF, then therefore they have to go and the ETF itself has to go and buy Bitcoin and then therefore the price would go up. Um, but it also kind of means that there aren't as many sellers as there are buyers, right? And that's pushing the price up because sellers are selling at a specific price. So there has to be the other side of the trade. And if the other side of the trade is there, then it might not actually mean anything. And if it's not there, right, then it will push the price up. So um, we saw, like, I think the the right example for this is, and it's kind of a bad example because this is a Bitcoin podcast. So 
I'm sorry to bring like all coins into this, but people would always say things like, oh, when Litecoin gets listed on Coinbase, the price is going to pump and I'm going to make out really well or Ripple or whatever the coin of the day is, right? People always have these conjectures of what's going to happen when it gets listed. And then it doesn't come to fruition, right? Because there are people trading, right? And they were going to be trading anyways. And so it doesn't necessarily bring anything to the price action or so forth. So a much bigger deal is always made about these things. And then whatever happens, you know, happens. And so um, I think it will bring Bitcoin adoption, but I don't know necessarily if it's going to bring the price action that people want so quickly. Hmm. One thing that I'm really excited for that I'm not sure uh, is like appreciated as broadly among Bitcoiners is that, uh, the institutions that are hoping to profit from these products are also significant shareholder investors in most of the major media companies. So I think I think it's fair to expect that we're going to see a wallpaper of Bitcoin on all kinds of, uh, you know, the Daily Show to financial television. Like it's, it's going to be a big story. So I, I, I think I think that's kind of a net positive. Um, you mentioned gold ETFs, too. I, you know, the other thing I think that's interesting is. The, the ETFs, the gold ETFs did really uh, rocket the gold price. Um, this is like going back 17 years or 20 years now. And um, this is kind of in spite of the fact that uh, Bitcoin has solved a problem in terms of being able to verify how much Bitcoin is being owned by any anyone who says they're owning it, which is a challenge with gold. So I, I, So I see this as being a you know, a positive for the Bitcoin price action, because I, I don't think anyone in their right mind running a Bitcoin ETF would try to, to, would try to, uh, not actually hold the underlying asset. You'd be insane to, uh, try and paper over that one, but we'll see. I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree with you there. And yeah, I think there's a case to be made for both sides for sure. I guess I was playing more devil's advocate on like why necessarily the price might not go up, but yeah, price could also go up quite a bit. And I, yeah, I could see it go either way, to be honest. I'm curious, like, I think, I think that there's, I imagine that among, um, people like yourself who are already working today to help clients understand the importance that Bitcoin could play in helping people plan for the future. There's, there's going to be, there, there is still a lot of unknown, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation. And this kind of idea of Bitcoin financial planning is probably something that is going to look a lot different in 2035 and 2045 and 2055. And, uh, gosh, I sure hope so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to your, like, to your point about, you think there's only going to be one currency, like where, where do you think Bitcoin and financial planning kind of go over the next 15 or 20 years and none of this is investment advice now we're just uh i'm just curious to conjecturing here yeah yeah um it's a great question honestly so let me caveat this with i'm probably wrong so whatever i'm going to say you know you'll play this in 20 years and everyone's gonna laugh at me and i'm okay with that um (laughs) all right now that i've said my piece um so what i see is that advisors today are going to spend a lot of time educating and paving the way for what advisors in the future are going to be doing. And why I say that is because we're so early. There are still so many people who don't know pretty much really anything about Bitcoin, right? Um, And so there are a lot of people who just are going to look to an advisor for guidance. There's going to be then the group of people who I'm actually dealing with who are leading the spear charge, basically, on all the new financial planning that's happening. So what we're running up against now with clients coming in, you know, with lots of Bitcoin at this point, um, it's significant portions of their net worth or, you know, more than an average advisor would say is appropriate. You know, if the average advisor says buy one to three percent and somebody's coming in with 20 percent or more. Right. The average advisor is going to say, let's trim this position. Um, what we do, though, is we say, OK, is this appropriate given the client situation, their understanding of the technology, their risk tolerance, their spouse's opinion on what's going on, how are they storing it? What kind of savings level is appropriate for this person? You know how much they want to have in savings versus investment. Right. We were looking at it a very different way. And then from there, we're looking at all the financial planning um, problems, really, that arise in holding this asset and securing the asset. Um, So helping making sure that clients are storing it properly, right? A lot of, you know, long term Bitcoiners are going to be storing this asset properly, but maybe they haven't let anybody else know where they've stored it. Um, And so that's an estate planning problem that's that's come up multiple times of like, hey, does your wife know where you keep your wallets? And he's like, yeah, I gave her a treasure map. But like, you know, she has to find the treasure map because I don't want anyone to find the treasure map. I'm like, well, does she know how to find the treasure map? Yeah, I left her another treasure map. 
laundromat, but you know, that one's not that easy to find either. Like we're coming up with things like this now, you know, or where like husband decides to change the location several times of the hardware wallets, you know, for security. Right. But the wife only remembers the first one. So, you know, at some point it's like, okay, you guys are going to put yourself in a situation where you're losing your Bitcoin, right? More likely than somebody actually robbing you. So the thing that we're running into right now, just from a basic storage perspective is like, what's the risk we're trying to mitigate here, right? Like, is it likely that somebody comes to Scott's house and, you know, finds his Bitcoin and steals it? Or is it more likely that, you know, it gets lost from somebody, you know, moving this Bitcoin around multiple times, trying to protect it, or, you know, hardware wallet malfunctioning, or seed cards aren't being stored properly, right? And the hardware mal- like malfunctions, or it's in a fire or so forth, right? Like, so we're trying to mitigate these other risks. These are problems, though, that I don't think are going to exist in 20 to 30 years, because they're going to be worked out, right? It's not going to be what you go to an advisor for. People are coming to me now because it's new, right? They don't know how to do it. Um, And so what I think is happening now is we're paving the way for like, what are going to be best procedures for people to be doing, given their situations, and that we're going to basically have standard operating procedures for if you're in this situation, this is what you do. If you're, you know, if you're married with kids, how you handle that. If you're married with young kids, how you handle that. If you're, you know, unmarried, like, how are you dealing with with storage and estate planning? Um, If you're, you know, in the older generation, how are you dealing with gifting? Or how are you dealing with storage so that the next generation who you're passing it to doesn't necessarily have access to it now, but will have access to it at the right time, right? There's all these little things that are going into passing wealth in a way that's not in the system that we haven't really approached before. And then there's just like general estate planning. So it's applying the principles of estate planning that exist today to money, this new money, and how it's going to pass. And so um, that's on a state-by-state basis. Um, that we work closely with with the state attorneys on to make sure that we're planning for it appropriately, that we're assigning the Bitcoin to trust appropriately and so forth. So I think that all of this stuff is stuff that we're, that we're sort of out there trying to figure out right now, but will be hammered out and will be kind of tried and true in 20 to 30 years from now. And so there'll be new problems, obviously, that will come up for people that financial planners will will fix. You're involved with uh, a, a network of financial, Bitcoin financial advisors, and uh, you tweeted recently that the CFP board has reached out to start some dialogue. What, what's going on there? So we don't really know, to be honest. Um, I And this is recorded before uh, Christmas, like you said, um, in 2023. So we don't really know. We have until January 5th to respond to them. Um, we're split as a network on what we think. Some of us think that they just want information about what Bitcoin financial advisors are doing and how they're doing it um, because that information is not necessarily super public. Um, some of us do think that um, they're trying to take enforcement action against us just based on who it came from and how it's worded. Um, I'm not really sure. I actually just I emailed them and asked for more information before I answer every, anything. So I wish I can give you more insight as to what's happening. I'm sure it will unfold and potentially publicly unfold what's going on. Um, The way I see it right now is that they could have, if they want information about what we're doing, they could have reached out in a way that was more productive um, and that this is not the right way to get information from people who who aren't doing anything wrong. Um, Like I've been through state at a state examination um, while, you know, dealing with clients with Bitcoin. Texas didn't find anything wrong with what we're doing. Other people in the network have also been through their state examinations and SEC examinations, and nothing was um, said to be wrong with what we were doing in Bitcoin. So for the CFP board to turn around and say that we're doing something wrong and it violates their ethics, um, it's unclear whether or not that would actually be true. I mean, we were we're a group of people who care about our clients quite a bit. Um, We do right by our clients. We charge appropriate fees. Um, that are agreed upon. Uh, we don't egregiously charge people for what we're doing. Um, we don't charge them in any hidden kind of ways. We don't sell Bitcoin to people and then take a cut or commission or anything like that. We're all just the only CFP financial planners who are trying to help clients who have questions about their Bitcoin. So from my perspective, like we're not doing anything wrong. We have nothing to hide. Um, and I'm willing to take a stand for the community about it. Um, and I guess it's yet to be seen whether or not they're going to um, think that we're behaving appropriately in the community or not. Um, And so I do think, though, that my CFP might be at risk. Um, And uh, I'm willing to fight for both the community and my CFP. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it feels a little bit like the um, horse producers of America coming for the the early auto manufacturers or 
I, I mean, I make a joke about it, but it, but it, it's tragic because I do think that Bitcoin, it, it's not just a niche thing that could be, you know, uh, a good performing asset in your portfolio. Like I personally believe it, it's the single most important thing people need to be thinking about uh, for for uh, having any kind of long term plan for for wealth protection. And uh, so it, it's it's tragic that we're in this kind of like um, it's maybe the, the the moment where money failing has arrived before the general understanding of the solution has germinated properly uh, among professionals. And I'm thinking about something you said earlier, this idea about two things being true. So I, I really believe, uh, so my, I'm going to play this game, two things that are true. One thing that's true is financial advisors are really important and they, and they do make huge difference. People who work with financial advisors versus those who don't tend to end up in radically different places later in life. But it's also true that 99% of financial advisors do not understand Bitcoin even enough to understand why, like, they they just don't even know what it does or why you would want to own it, let alone uh, be able to have an educated conversation with the client about it. And and that's a big problem. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really interested about this uh, thing that's going on with you. And I hope that uh, I'll I'll be following it curiously to see where you guys go. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would say, too, is that this doesn't change what we're doing. So, the CFP boards, you know, doing whatever they're saying they're doing, they're not the government. Um, at the end of the day, we are registered investment advisors with either our state or the SEC. And if the states and the SEC say that what we're doing is fine, then we continue to operate. If it's the states and the SEC that turn around and say that we can't do this anymore. Um, I, I mean, I would be hard pressed to find how they would do that, given that the SEC has come out multiple times and said that Bitcoin is a commodity. Um, and that it's other, you know, digital assets and cryptocurrencies that they're looking at as being registered securities. So we're not selling any un- unregistered securities if you're going to put a sales term on it. We're just advising people, for the most part, who already own Bitcoin, what they should be doing. Um, and for people who don't own Bitcoin, we're just telling them why they might want to buy some. Um, and th- we don't force anybody to buy. We just give them information and then they decide whether or not they're going to do it. Right. And so that's what financial planners do in general. Right. They say, OK, like these are your options. Do you want to do this or this? Right. And we just lay it out for the client in a way that makes sense, given their financial situation, because that's why they're going to a client. And as long as we are providing the services that we say we're providing and we do it in a way that is um, with full disclosure and we charge the fees that are appropriate, that a client has agreed to that um, that are, again, fully disclosed and we are not violating any any state or or federal agreements, basically. Um, and so the CFP can't like create their own, <laughs> their own dialogue and, and, you know, their own whole scope of what people can and can't do above that. They can remove CFPs from people for sure. Um, and I would say that that's fine. And we'll just continue to operate the way that we're operating, just not with the CFP board anymore. It would be unfortunate because, um, the CFP prior to FTX going down had made it clear that they wanted to be a little bit more um, descriptive and inclusive on how they contribute to, as they said, digital assets and what they put in their curriculum and so forth. Um, and they basically nixed that after FTX collapsed. Um, but I don't think that they're going in the right direction, right? The right direction is, okay, like, yeah, they're bad actors. They're bad actors in every aspect of finance, Right. That's the reason why the CFP exists. We exist because we're good actors. We are showing what people should do. We are the guiding light of how people um, like can be ethical and work in finance and help people, right? And so like that aligns 100% with what's going on in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is here to help people, to save people from what's going on in the financial system, to find an, a way out of like, you know, just being buried under you know, debt and dilution and so forth um, and materialism, really. Um, and the CFP can be part of something very, very good if they want to be. For people who are listening and uh, maybe they're not quite ready to take the plunge on owning some Bitcoin or, or thinking about asking their financial advisor about where to start, uh, what, is there somewhere uh, uh, like a resource that you recommend to people who are just putting a, a pinky toe in the, in the water or uh, a question or two that, that you help uh, maybe take people take away as they as they uh are just figuring out where to go? Yeah. So I actually really like Andy Edstrom's book for people starting out. It's Why Buy Bitcoin. 
Um, it's a book I gave to my dad, actually, and he he liked it quite a bit. I think that because Andy, um, so Andy's also a financial advisor, um, and he, you know, as he's worked in mainstream large companies the way I have. And so the, his perspective on things and how he explains it is really helpful to somebody who's just kind of average rather than, um, you know, there are a lot of Bitcoin books out there that are amazing, but, you know, they're very technical or they're, you know, very much libertarian, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's not to say that, you know, Andy's not those things too, but the way he wrote this book is really for, you know, just the average person who is working really hard and who has made some money and who kind of understands the in, ins and outs of, you know, basic finance to understand why you would want to own Bitcoin. So I think that's a really good resource for people. Um, and Andy's just, he's a, he's a great guy and you should follow him on Twitter anyways, cause he's got good content. Cool. I think, I think it's so cool. Uh, what you guys are doing It's it's this, um, I think we we the, this time we're living in today is kind of an unprecedented time for the pressure for people to conform intellectually and think the way that they're told to think. And uh, so for you, your network, you guys are doing something really important by sort of trailblazing in spite of uh, immense pressure to uh, to to not do <laughs> what 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 you're doing. And so uh, I'm uh, you know thankful that there are people out, out there, professionals like yourself that are um, that are doing this work today and excited to see, uh, where, where it leads to, like, like you were saying in, in five, 10 and, and 15 years for people who want to find more of you online and are listening or is there uh, somewhere they can go to do that? Yeah, sure. So I, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Morgan with an E Rochard. Um, I have my financial planning practice is origin wealth advisors. It's originwa.com. I also do Bitcoin consulting. So if you just need a little advice on, you know, how you're storing it and, you know, just little Bitcoin related questions, then you can find me at moneyowners.com. Um, if you're actually looking for, you know, how much Bitcoin should I hold? Unfortunately, I can't advise anyone in that capacity there. You have to be in my registered investment advisor, where is the legal place for me to give investment advice? Um, I've had that question come up quite a bit. So um, unfortunately, my hands are tied. And the reason why fees are very different, let's say, in money owners and much lower and more affordable is because they don't have the regulatory overhead that I have in my financial planning practice. So I'm sorry for that. Um and then I did write a book. It's called um, The Quick Start Guide to Personal Finance. You can find that on Amazon. I'm currently working on another book, which will be the Bitcoin Personal Finance book. I hope to have that out next year. I really do. <laughs> I'm working on it. And it'll be out as soon as I can. Right on. Morgan, thanks for so much for coming on the show. Uh, when you do get that second book, I would love to have you back and, uh, and we can talk about that one. That sounds great. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting BlockRewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward Benefits and Pension Advisory. For more information, find them at ParamountBenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 